When you look into God's holy law, you see not a dirty face, but a dirty soul. And it becomes a schoolmaster, a tutor to lead you to the blood of Calvary that you might be clean. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a study of the book of Romans, and yesterday in a message entitled, God's Superabounding Grace, we began looking at Romans 5, verses 18 to 21. In our study of Romans 5, we've already touched on the fact that sin entered the world through the disobedience of Adam, and how sin has progressively increased through the generations that followed Adam and Eve. Were it not for grace, those of us who are sinners, and that's each of us, would be without hope. But as our passage today reveals, the grace of God is abounding and it covers all the sins of all who accept the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. As we pick up, we see that the Holy Spirit begins to reside in those who decide to follow Christ at the moment of their decision. If you've been saved, you have the Holy Spirit. Some of our dear Pentecostal friends historically taught, and some still do, that you get saved, and after you get saved, you are baptized with the Spirit where you receive God the Holy Spirit. But the Bible is very clear. All Christians, 1 Corinthians 12, 11, have been baptized by the Spirit. All Christians have the Holy Spirit. So he will say in Romans 8, 9, if you do not have him, you're not one of his. You don't get saved, become a child of God, and later get the Spirit. Now, there was a time in human history when that was true. Those 120 people up there in the upper room were saved people. And had one of them had a heart attack before the Spirit of God came, they would have went to heaven as believers in Jesus Christ. But that was the first coming of the Spirit. And there is a few rare exceptions in Scripture, like in Acts 8, where you have the Samaritan believers who actually are saved, but they are without the Holy Spirit. Because God, not wanting to have two churches, a Jewish church and a Samaritan church, Samaritans being those half-breeds who are despised, uh, He waits until the apostles come down and lay hands on them, authenticating that they have the same deal that the Jewish people have, and they are given the Holy Spirit. But by the time the epistles are written, God is crystal clear. You, having listened to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So you hear, you believe, and you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, just as verse 5 indicates. So if what Adam did, here's the point of verse 18, if what Adam did could affect the whole human race, even so what Christ did, his act could affect the whole human race. He wants you to understand that one act had an an impact on the whole of humanity. And so we saw last week that this whole idea that Jesus' death was only for a few, that's like saying Adam's sin only affected a few. No, Adam's sin affected all, just as Christ's death affected all. The atonement was not for a particular group of people. It was not for a limited group of people. It was for all. All means all. That's always what all means. It means all, all right? So the very first thing is the comparison of how one act affects all. Secondly, I want you to see the comparison of how one act changes all. 
how it changes all. Look now, if you will, in verse 19. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Now, there's two expressions here. One speaks of those who are made sinners, and the other expression, those who are made righteous. And understand, when God describes man as being made a sinner, when he's looking at Adam, and we were in and with Adam, it doesn't mean that Adam created, uh, that God created a being who was sinful. No, everything that God made was good. God didn't create evil. He didn't even create the devil as the devil. He created him as Lucifer, as a bright, shining, glorious one, and he became the devil. He, he, he became the fallen one that he is. And so Adam was created in perfection, but he rebelled against God. And Senses 5.12 says we're in Adam, so from the moment of conception, we too are sinners. And so when the text says that some are made righteous, neither is he saying that everyone who is saved never sins again. No, that's obviously not the case. So what exactly is Paul saying here? He's speaking of your standing. You're either identified in Adam, made as a sinner, or you are in another realm, identified in Christ, made as righteous. And there's nothing in between. Throughout Scripture, you're either saved or you're lost. You're either one of Christ's sheep or you're one of Satan's goats. You're either in the kingdom of light or you're in the kingdom of darkness. But there is no in-between. And so this morning, everyone listening to my voice, you're either in God's sight made sinful or you are in God's sight made righteous. And again, when God says a man is made righteous, it does not mean that he never sins. When Paul comes to the seventh chapter, he's going to describe the war within, the unhappy, wretched man, the unhappy Christian, and the struggle that he faces. John will write, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say that we've not sinned, we make God a liar. And his word is not in us because God from Genesis to Revelation teaches that even his people sin. But he's speaking here of a conferred identification. He's speaking here of a status that a person has. They either have the status of a sinner or they have the status of a saint. It's what we studied in Romans 4 called imputation. And Abraham believed God and it was reckoned, or some of your translations say it was imputed to him as righteousness. He's speaking of a status that God confers upon you. And of course, he's teaching here through the obedience of the one, not just talking about Jesus living a holy life in the context of his death, the many will be made righteous. Had Jesus come to this earth, lived a perfect life, and he did, never sinned, and he never did, and then ascended into heaven ever before he went to the cross, he could have saved absolutely no one. It's his obedience to the cross when Paul will say to the church at Philippians that Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even on a cross through that act of obedience we can be imputed, conferred with a new status. Some of you know that my father was a practicing ophthalmologist for some 50 years. And I was always fascinated as a child when 
my dad would call from the office and say to my mother, you need to drive to Boston and you need to pick up some corneas because we need to transplant them. Uh, they've gotten more sophisticated in the whole process, but I would ride with my mother. We'd go to Boston. They'd give her this little container and in it were a set of corneas. Most of you know the cornea is the window of the eye. And sometimes congenitally from birth, that is clouded. I remember my dad telling me when he was in the Navy in Guam, he operated on a number of Guamanians who had a clouded eye from birth and so they couldn't see. Many folks, when they get old, sometimes they're animals. You'll see that old white specks begin to form in the eye or in humans as well. So they cut out the cornea and they transplant and put a new cornea in. I remember asking my dad one day, I said, I'd hate to be your first patient, you know, when you take that knife and put it over the eye. And he said, well, you know, before we ever do that, we would operate dozens and dozens and dozens of times on the eye of a pig. I said, why not a dog or a cat? He said, because the pig's eye most closely resembles the human eye. Maybe God had a joke in that, I'm not sure. But. And so they would operate on pig's eyes. Well, anyway, one famous cornea transplant was of a condemned criminal who was going to be executed for multiple murders. And uh, prior to his execution, he offered his corneas for science. In fact, they allowed him to meet the man to whom the corneas were going to be transplanted. And when he died, they removed his corneas and they put it in the eyes of a man who then was able to see. Well, let's just suppose a policeman pulled over the man who received the corneas and said, you have the corneas of a convicted murderer, off to jail you will go. No, that would never hold in a court of law. Though the corneas were formerly in the body of a murderer, they were now in the eyes of a righteous person, of an innocent man who had never committed murder. And the judge would say, no, the corneas are now identified with a different person. This person is indeed not guilty. That really illustrates the doctrine of biblical imputation. You are either identified this morning in Adam, and if you are, you are guilty and condemned, and according to Ephesians 2, by nature a child of wrath, or you are identified as being in Jesus Christ as righteous. And this is a righteousness that he underscored in verse 17 that you cannot earn. It is a righteousness that is received by grace through faith as a gift. Now look at verse 19, because here's the point. Christ took upon himself what he was not, and he gave to me what I am not. He imputed to me righteousness. For, verse 19, as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. I mean, what a fantastic new standing. This is what he is referring to in 2 Corinthians 5. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Why? Because he has a new standing in Jesus Christ. When we come to Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, he'll say, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And though according to the Revelation in the 12th chapter, the devil continually and habitually brings accusations before the throne of God, sinful acts that the people of God commit, they don't mean a hill of beans because we have an advocate with the Father who has given us a new identification. 
But the Bible is very clear. There's no middle ground. Very often I'll ask people on a scale of zero to 100, zero, I have no idea, 100, I have no doubt, how certain are you that you go to heaven? And they'll say, oh, 25 or 50 or 62% or 28%. I always wonder how they come up with some of those numbers. And, and, uh, but listen, it's either zero or 100. You're either in Christ, identified in his righteousness, or you're outside of Christ, identified in Adam's unrighteousness. And one of these days, we're all going to leave this world, and the world we're going to is determined by which person we've been identified with. If you're an Adam, you will spend an eternity away from God in a place called hell, the lake of fire, Gehenna. If you are in Christ, then to be absent from the body will be to be present with the Lord. I was trying to help a young lady understand this this week and her need to receive Christ. And she said, well, I don't want to make a decision. I said, well, listen, when you say you don't want to make a decision, you've made a decision. I said, if you go out here on Highway 280 and you're standing in the middle of the road and there's a tractor trailer bearing down and you choose not to get out of the way, you've made your decision. And there are consequences with that decision. Well, people say, well, I can't, I can't decide what I want to do or I won't make this decision. You've made your decision. Listen, you're already out in Highway 280. The tr cement truck's coming right at you and it can't stop. Jesus said, you are on the Broadway. He didn't say, well, don't get on the Broadway. In Matthew 7, he said, we're on the Broadway that leads to destruction. He's inviting us to leave the Broadway and to get on the narrow road that leads to life. And the only way to be transferred out of one kingdom into another is through faith in Jesus Christ. All right, so there's a comparison of how one act affects all. There's a comparison of how one act affects all. Finally, I want you to see the comparison of how one act rules all. This raises a question that brings us to verse 20. Notice what he says. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now, Paul doesn't so much ask a question here as he anticipates a question. A question especially that Jewish people would ask. Listen, if righteousness is received, as you just said in verse 17, if it's a gift that is received and not a reward that is earned, if God gives us this righteousness as a gift, then what on earth is the function of the law? Things like the Ten Commandments. That's the thought, and people ask the same kinds of questions today. They say, if you are saved by grace and not by works, as you evangelical born-again say, then what's the function of the Ten Commandments? Are you telling me that my trying to keep the Ten Commandments will not save me? Why did God give them? Well, he's going to give us a number of reasons before we're done with Romans. But initially, he wants us to see here in verse 20, the law came in, so that the transgression would increase. Paul is saying instead of preventing sin, it brought just the opposite. It increased unrighteousness. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Hold your finger here and turn back a few pages, if you will, to uh, Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. Uh, I want you to see something. I just want to remind you of something that we've already studied because Paul brings up this issue several 
different times in the epistle to the Romans. He taught us that some of us know God's laws because God wrote it on tablets of stone or in pieces of parchment. And then there are other people who have never seen the tablets of the Ten Commandments. They never saw the first scroll or parchment of the law, but they also knew the law. How so? Well, if you remember here in Romans 2.14, and he's dealing here with Gentiles, and the word Gentile in the Bible can be used in a couple of different ways. Sometimes in deference to a a Jew, a non-Jew being a Gentile, that's most of us here today, or as a synonym for a pagan, because most Gentiles were pagans in Jesus' day. So when he said, don't pray like the Gentiles, he's saying, don't pray like a pagan. Well, Paul here is describing the pagan. And he says in 2.14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are law to themselves. Now, two corresponding facts are given to us about Gentiles or pagans. The first is they do not have the law. And note, he says that twice here in verse 14. Externally, they did not possess the Scriptures. They did not hold into their hands the scrolls. God entrusted the scrolls, the parchments, to the Jewish people. Now, Gentiles could go and could hear. They could become God-fearers. They could become proselytes or Gentiles who converted to Judaism. But they weren't given the law. The oracles of God, Paul says, were given to the Jewish people. But secondly, while they did not possess the Old Testament law, internally they did. How so? He says they are a law to themselves. Now pay attention. A Gentile, a pagan, who does not have a Bible, who does not have the Scriptures, instinctively does the things of the Scriptures. How so? In that they are a law to themselves. Not in the sense that they formulate and create and make their own laws, but within their heart, God wrote His law. And so I told you before of one of my missionary friends in Papua New Guinea, And he went there to the Arumba people. Literally, they've got spears. They're in loincloths. And yet these people thought it was wrong to steal from one another. They thought it was wrong to commit adultery. They thought it was wrong to murder. And in that community of 28,000 people, there were consequences. How was that possible? These not having the law, because they're a law to themselves. He further explains, verse 15, and that they show the work of the law written in their hearts their conscience bearing witness in their thoughts, alternately accusing or else defending them. And so while they do not have a Bible in their hands, they have the requirements of the law in their hearts because God wrote it there. And that's why man's law, if it's a good law, is based on what the theologians of centuries past called natural law. That is that, and by natural law, they meant that law that God has given and written into the hearts of all men. And so we have in the executive branch, we have in our Congress, everyone from our president to our vice president to scores of uh, people in the House and in the Senate of every party who are saying that homosexuality is okay. That goes against what God has said. And when you hear a politician or a preacher say that, those are people who are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. They are going against what God has clearly said in nature. Even nature itself, the Bible tells us, that this is a wrong kind of thing. How do do we know that? Because God wrote the law into our hearts. And God help a nation 
God, help a nation where the people as a whole begin to suppress the truth and unrighteousness and embrace things that God calls evil and an abomination and to call such things right. God, help a nation because they are in a fast tail down, spin downward, and they are going to come under the judgment of God Almighty. And so here he is, he says, these Gentiles, they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience alternately either accusing or defending them. Now, it is true that a man's conscience can become damaged. It can become seared. It can become calloused as with a, uh, like a callous on my hand, where it becomes unresponsive, where a man can call evil good and good evil. And that's what, that's what's happening. Uh, these Christians who, who say homosexuality say is wrong, we're bigots. We're narrow-minded. We just have a warped view. No, we're just saying what God plainly says, what our conscience tells us, and what the written word of God says. Now go back here to Romans 5 and verse 20. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now, there's two verses that you want to have written next to verse 20. One is Romans 3.20, and the other is Romans 7.7. 7. Those would be good verses to study this week. Let me just read to you Romans 3.20. He says, By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. If this morning you're trying to get a good status with God by the works of the law, by the things you do, it's not going to happen. By the works of the law, Shall no flesh, no person be declared righteous, saved, forgiven in his sight. Then again, why was it given? Paul tells us, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. One of the purposes of God's law was to show us again what sinners we were. It was never given to save us. It was given to reveal us. It was given to expose us. It was not given to redeem us, but to show us our need for a redeemer. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now you might want to turn over a page or so in your Bibles to Romans 7 and verse 7. He will bring this up again. And again, these are not the sole purposes of the law. This is one purpose. The law is good, Paul will say. And God's going to use it in the life of the believer. But in Romans 7, 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. God forbid the thought. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had said, you shall not covet. You see, whether God's law is written on a piece of paper or written in your heart, it is there. And when you do what God says not to do in his law, then your conscience defends you or it accuses you. When you do what's wrong, it accuses you. When you do what's right, it defends you. It reveals you. When God said you shall not steal and you went out and stole something, the law convicted you. When the law said you shall not covet or you shall not commit adultery, when you violated that, the law convicted you. It made you acutely aware of a problem. To the church of Galatia, Paul said it in these words, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. I like the old King James. It says, wherefore the law has, was our schoolmaster to bring us on to Christ that we might be justified by faith. And so as Luther said, the function of the law is not to justify but to terrify. It's like a mirror. You looked in a mirror this morning and you saw dirt on your face. You didn't take the mirror and rub it on the dirt 
It would only smear it. No, it showed the need and you went to the basin and you washed. When you look into God's holy law, you see not a dirty face but a dirty soul. And it becomes a schoolmaster, a tutor to lead you to the blood of Calvary that you might be cleaned. And so that's really the thought here in Romans 5 and verse 20. The law came in so that the transgression would actually increase. Now let me explain with an illustration. When we were planning a new church in Aiken, usually once, twice, occasionally three times a month, I would drive to Aiken. And when I would go up there, at first I wasn't sure the best way to go because everyone who was from Aiken had a different way. There's five different ways minimum to get to Aiken. And before I learned all the shortcuts and all the back roads, I used to go through this little town called New Ellington on Route 19. Now I remember the first time driving there and I thought maybe I'd made a wrong turn. I go into a convenience store. They said, no, right down this road, but watch it. This is a speed trap. And it goes from 55 to 45 to 35. And it goes, but all the time it's five lanes. And all the time it's just as thickly settled. And so they said, watch it, watch it, watch it. It's one of the more famous speed traps in South Carolina. So when I saw that thing change from 55 to 45 to 35, what did I think? Oh, I'm among those who are going to enjoy the lower speed limit and just rejoice in this slow speed limit on this five-lane road. Well, not exactly, but uh, I remember coming home one night, and I would go there. I would leave here usually. I'd eat lunch. I'd uh, leave at 3 o'clock. I'd go there. I'd have three or four counseling appointments. I'd preach. I'd do another two or three, and it was a late night. I'm leaving Aiken at 10 o'clock, and I'm whooped because I arrived here like I do most Sunday mornings between 6 and 6.30. And I thought, I wonder if I can just do five over. You know, just, I know it says 45, but maybe I, I wanted to really get home. Now, uh, I won't say all that I've done, but I, I know that um, some of you can identify. Some of you see a state policeman, and all of a sudden, you just kind of tap that brake, don't you? I, I know I'm speaking to a multitude of sinners this morning. <laughs> I'm not condoning breaking the speed limit. Please understand, don't write me any letters. What I want you to see is that the more laws there are, the more possibility of breaking those laws. And that's what Paul is saying. The more laws there are, the more you can break those laws. Why? Because by nature we're in Adam and we have a proclivity towards doing the wrong thing. You take a child, you put 10 pieces of candy on the table. They're all identical pieces and you set one over here separate. Which one does that little child want? He wants the one that you said he can't have. He can have any one of the nine, but not this one. He'll negotiate for that one. Why? Because that's the way it is. Where sin in, where the law is, sin abounds. And so the opposite is true. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Look at that. What a beautiful thing. He says the law piles up sin. That's the picture here. But then he says, where sin increased, grace increased all the more, the NIV says. The law points to our sin, and it is ever increasing. But the grace of God is not only sufficient to cover that sin, it is superabounding grace, able to cover all sin, past, present, and future. If you would like to listen to today's message again, visit our website at searchthescriptures.org and click on the Resources tab 
and under the series, find the book of Romans, then click on program ROM26, entitled God's Superabounding Grace. You can also hear this or any of our other messages on the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets. Tomorrow we conclude our look at God's superabounding grace. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.